Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople. Today, it's my great pleasure to introduce you to Aaron Leader. Aaron, welcome to the show. Hey, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's great to chat with you again. Uh, you and I had lunch just a few weeks ago, and I really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, what we were sp- talking about in particular was basically how to hire and identify great sales operations talent. So that's going to be the topic of the show. Aaron heads up sales development at 20 Pine. They are a specialized sales ops and Salesforce recruiting shop that's part of a, a much bigger organization that acquired them a little while ago called Mitchell Martin Company. Just love to ask you first, Aaron, what is your favorite sales book of all time and why? Number one for me that I just can always think of in terms of the uh, sale is caps for sale. Uh, I think you can picture the peddler with the hats piled up on top of his head. He's walking around town, he's making his sales, and then he decides to expand his territory with no real game plan. He's yelling caps for sale and he goes out into the country, uh, total ops fail that he didn't really figure it out first. And then he decides to fall asleep on the job, also a no-no. Uh, monkeys steal his product. He fights. He's trying to get back. There's no real negotiation or bargaining skills. And uh, only once he's ready to walk away do they return said product. He reorganizes his hats. He uh, gets things back in order. He puts his hat up and he goes back to his region where he had previous success. I was reading it to my daughter recently and uh, I saw the, the parallels to the sales journey that we go through day in, day out. That's awesome. So it's actually a, a children's book. Yes. Well, great. Well, let, yeah, let's transition into our, our main topic of the day. So I guess let's just start with the state of hiring for sales operations. My sense is the demand for sales ops is as high, if not higher than for even you know sales professionals. Is that the sense you get in, in your day to day? Sure. Well, it's the only thing we focus on. So I guess I can't say how much we're seeing for sales professionals, but um, the demand is high and the, the supply is lower. So it creates that unbalance. And I think any great sales ops candidate, they have a few options when they're becoming active on their search, you know, to explore and see what is out there that's really going to be appetizing. The challenge, I think, for great companies, except for just, you know, attracting talent at the top of the funnel really understanding what are the key differentiators for your company and for the role itself. Are we focusing on territories and comp plans or are they still going to be the, you know, the main owner for Salesforce or whatever CRM you're using? Is forecasting the, the number one bucket we're looking to fill? Is sales leadership and kind of like being a voice for a CRO, is that another possibility? And I think where a lot of our clients struggle is trying to identify at the top of, okay, cool, we know we need a sales ops leader. What is going to be the most important bucket this person's going to fill and being able to identify that? Yeah, you mentioned, I guess, four, at least four major categories there. There's sort of the territory and comp planning. So it's the operational execution elements, forecasting and analytics, which is a complementary skill set to that, but still a little different. Salesforce administration, which is quite different, mm-hmm. and then sales strategy at a much, much higher level as being the right hand of the CRO. So, you know, at least three to four different buckets there. I would assume when your customers initially come in with a, a spec for what they're looking for, they want that purple spotted Easter bunny with all three yes. or four of those uh, abilities. 
yes, a super strategic comp plan design wizard who also loves uh, administering Salesforce themselves and keeping the instance intact and implementing new tools and leading the sales team and, you know, having a seat at the table so they can, you know, speak up to executives and be able to do all the, the reporting, be able to understand where, you know, SDRs are hitting a wall, where AEs are hitting a wall. It's everything. I guess with precious few exceptions at, at any price, does that exist? It does not. And I, I think my favorite thing to ask a hiring manager at the top of the search is to truly define what are the five must hits in your hire. And it's okay if, if we're including Salesforce in there and strategy is still a piece of it, but you have to be comfortable understanding that if you hit three of those five, so we call it like the 60% rule, if you hit three of five and the candidate's excited in you and you're excited in the candidate, you should move as quick as possible. And what is quick these days? I know you, you recruit across the country with a, a special focus on San Francisco. Mm-hmm. So I, I have to believe quick in San Francisco is lightning speed. You have to move super quick in San Francisco and in New York City as well. Any candidate, even however passive they are, if they're on a search, they're going to have more than one offer. And it's not to say that just the first offer is going to get accepted, but you're putting yourself in a better light with the candidate if you show that excitement as close to the final round as possible. Since people are looking for those four different areas, right, or or more, right? I mean, they've got their five that they'll choose, but we talked through sure. through four or so of them. Is it often the case that with your customers, they will decide, you know what, I don't just need one person, I actually need two? I mean, in a lot of cases, as they sometimes will embark on a search and maybe a company's posting just for a sales ops manager. And then as they get deeper into the search, they'll realize, hey, you know what, we're enjoying those senior level profiles more and we think we need to go more senior and in a lot of cases they say what we're going to do is let's open it up more senior and then immediately have headcount for an administrator or an analyst that it's like cool we'll go more senior and there will be somebody to support in terms of the salesforce uh, upkeep right because i think it's pretty rare that the senior person is going to want to be willing They're, they're out there though I'll, I'll just say that they are out there. There are some folks who have moved up in their career that still enjoy that piece of the work. Obviously, they're harder to find, but they are out there. Outside of those four things we talked about before, what does a great candidate look like? I think a great candidate is open to sharing their experience. I, I think when we look at it from our recruiters qualifying those folks, a great candidate will be able to go into different projects that they've completed, paint for you clearly the who else was in play, how they interacted both with the senior leadership as well as the the sales folks on the team. They've seen an instance that needed help in terms of Salesforce either being revamped or moving over to Lightning. Those are like top questions we hear now. They've implemented a few tools, whether it's sales loft or, or outreach or an understanding of CPQ, obviously like a hot topic now. They need to be able to define for themselves what they really want out of their next role. And I think maybe that's what separates like a good candidate from a great candidate is there will be folks who will reach out to us who say, hey, I only really want to hear from 20 Pine when you guys come across the role that's really focused on territory expansion and uh, comp design and they're sitting within vertical X. I'm not saying there aren't good candidates who are just open to any sort of vertical and any sort of role, but... Uh, it makes their search on themselves much easier. And it also sets them up for success. So they aren't looking to leave after 
one year and five months. So they can really go to a company and help things grow, help the scale, and you know, set up processes to be absolutely optimized. In sales, you do see a relatively high, high turnover all the way up to the VP of sales or CRO level. Are you seeing a decent amount of job hopping also happening in sales ops? When you see somebody that's been at a company for more than two and a half years, if they haven't moved up in title, it's time to call that person and see, A, are they hungry? B, why haven't they moved up or what are they looking for next? Um, It's sad to say that you can't just be loyal to a company for years and years and years and fill the same role, but the best candidates are opportunistic. They do take phone calls. They see what else is out there. And if something hits, you know, checks the boxes, they, they make a move. I think one year, 10 months is like a median that we see that like folks move right before two years. What do you think it is? Why the one year, 10 month itch? Why do you think that's well, that happens there? Perhaps they came in and their main project or initiative was cleaned up at that one year mark. And they had a new project or maybe they were promised hires that didn't end up happening. Uh, you know, changes are made. We're in the, uh, the startup realm. You know, most of 25's clients are small to mid-sized businesses that just for around two years, for whatever reason, people are, they feel like, okay, cool. I've been here. It's almost two years. I'm ready to see what's next. What's the next challenge? A, and then B, the shorter answer is they'll make more money. In hiring salespeople and sales leaders, right, there's this belief that, right, you want to hire people who have sort of been there and done that where you're going, right? So if you're going from one to 10, you want someone who's made that ramp. If you go in from 10 million to 100 million, you want someone who's made that transition, right? So they've sort of been there and done that. Does that apply to sales ops people as well, that you want people who have experience with the ramp that you're on? Sure. We see it in terms of company size. And sometimes it's realistic and and sometimes it's unrealistic because let's say you go back to those four buckets we talked about at the top and then you say, oh, and the person has to come from experience where they've been at a company our size and they've been at a company five times our size. So they understand what things look like at scale. Sometimes you are just casting the net like far too narrow. It's nice to have those on the want list, but there are great candidates who have worked at large companies who perhaps they're, or like you look at a company and say, oh, well, there are too many thousand employees for them to be relevant for our 200 person startup. You have to find the kernel of, oh, their organization and what they served was actually a fraction of what it looks like as a whole. And they could in fact be relevant for your company. Obviously, the ultimate candidate is one who has been, you know, eight years at a single organization, maybe promoted every 18 to 24 months. That's the gem. On the flip side, though, is is there a stigma with a certain amount of tenure or, or people just so hungry for talent that they don't really they don't really bat an eyelash if someone's going to move after, say, six months where they're at? There is a, a right place, right time element with certain candidates. If a hiring manager knows they're onto something special and it seems like a great fit and they check the boxes in the right way, they will look past tenure. But it would be a lie if I said for some of the hiring managers I work with that they ask me every single time I submit, why did they leave this role? And then why did they leave the next role? And then why did they leave the next one? And it looks like, you know, nine months, one year, one month, six months, like what is the trend here? Because why would you pay an agency a, a high percentage on their base salary for somebody who might leave in seven months. That's bad business for everybody. 
Yeah, yeah, I guess that makes sense. It, it made me think of the other, uh, I guess I, I was assuming employed on either end of the spectrum of short or long duration, but then there's also people who decided to leave or were exited from their companies. That's not a strong enough stigma, I, I would guess, though, in the current hiring environment to be a barrier to having a conversation. As long as there's a story of, oh, my company was acquired and for the first six months, like changes didn't really happen, but then things started to flow in a way that wasn't really for me. It wasn't what I initially signed up for. And it was time for me to move on. Totally acceptable. Like that's, that's a different to, uh, yeah, I was there for five months and, uh, I don't know. It just wasn't right. I left. It's a different, <laughs> yeah, you, it's a different conversation. I get questions, sort of two different levels of questions from folks. Maybe we can separate them, but I'll frame them out first. One set of questions I get is from people who want to get into sales operations. So maybe they're coming in at the at the analyst level and they could be SDRs or they could be doing something else and they want to know, what do I need to do to get into sales ops at the entry level? And then I get other questions of people who are maybe in sales ops, but they want to move up to that strategic level that you described, right? That they want to get a seat at the table. But let, let's separate those if we can and, sure. and focus on the first one first. So what advice would you give to like an SDR as to whether they're a viable candidate? And if so, what do they need to do to actually get there? Raise your hand. If it interests you and you see yourself going that trajectory versus, okay, I put in my time in the trenches, the operation side of the business really excites me. Go speak to your, your managers about it and see if there is that opportunity internally. Because a lot of times you're probably going to more easily make that transition up while staying at the same company versus go to a new company without any prior experience. It's harder to get in if you're, if you're on the outside. Let's transition to the other thing, which is, you know, you've got someone, maybe they have built up their sales analyst forecasting territory kind of chops, but they want to move into a director or VP level. So maybe it's a senior manager. What does that person need to do to actually get seriously considered for those more senior jobs? Uh, it's, it, it, sometimes it's like proof of track record. Fortunately or unfortunately, you're tied to your, your company's success and showing what you have accomplished there, what's happened in the organization since you've joined, since you implemented whatever process it is that you want to champion as your you know, big win. That's part of it. I think another level is, you know, if you're a senior manager at a 500 person company, you're more likely to land that director role at an 80 person series A than oh, I want a director role at another 500 person series D or whatever, you know, whatever the leveling is. Great candidates and smart candidates figure out a way to move through the ecosystem. Sometimes they're just stuck at senior manager because their director is not going anywhere and you're at a, a large company. So you have to, you might have to go to a smaller company, become a bigger fish in a small pond and, uh, you know, be able to, to show, oh, this is what I've seen at the level of the company where I currently work. This is how I'm going to be able to help your company get there. Things like Glassdoor really help. Do your candidates, you know, will you get a lot of feedback from candidates who look on Glassdoor and say like, nope, not going to go for this opportunity. How, how impactful is Glassdoor in the experience? Yeah, sometimes it could even be a deal breaker. We often kind of guide candidates to speak to people you know, rather than just reading reviews from people you don't know. If you have a mutual connection who has worked there, or I mean, the scene in San Francisco is also like, it's pretty small, 
Like you can draw, connect the dots, six or seven different people from insert name of two to three companies. You know what I mean? Like you can find folks who have worked there or who have friends that work there and, you know, ask for a favor, take a call, grab a coffee and understand what it's like working at that company. I find sometimes that Glassdoor, it's almost polarizing, like the way I use Yelp, that like I'm going to write a caustic review of a restaurant that just ruined everything. And I might not even take the time to review something that was great. I'm with you with respect to like Yelp and Glassdoor. I think you do get those polarized reviews, the very happy people and the very unhappy people. You don't get the vast middle. Although I think when the, if you got five or 10 reviews for a company, uh, you can't really trust that. But once you've got, I don't know, 40, 50 and beyond, then it becomes, I think, a more reliable predictor. The other thing I've learned over time is to not view whatever number you see, I guess it's out of five probably, to not view that number as, as like a static number. You need to look at the trend of the recent reviews. So like if a company is a 4.2, which seems solid, right? Then it, the question is, are they, are they coming up from a 3.5 or are they coming down from a 5.0? Those are very, very different companies. And I think the, also the companies that are on the surge, I think they take advantage and like, as they should, like their brand and their, their space in the space at the moment in time when they're hiring for this function, they can get away with offering a little less with uh, just putting a different sort of timeline on a candidate that they might not expect and they will get those wins and they'll, they'll get candidates to accept. And I think, um, what you know the advice that we give to our clients in um, not only attracting and not only hiring and not only attaining but like retaining solid talent is just beat their asking price and i don't say this as a recruiter that's like oh if you, if you beat their asking price by 5k that's going to make me x more it's really like that's not a difference maker for an agency on the percentages that they charge that if you can beat their asking price by 5K, by 10K, if you have the, the wiggle room there, you are more likely to retain that person longer. And then you're not having another conversation with another agency at the one year, seven month mark. You'll have delighted them and gotten off to a good start. Sure. And just like the feeling that a candidate gets when the offer comes quickly and higher than they expect, it's a world of difference versus oh, we really like this person. We want to see two or three more through the process that are uh, one is one week behind and one is two interviews behind. The honest truth I have to give them is that that person is exploring other opportunities. If you really like them, if they are a good fit, one in the hand is better than two in the bush. You know, And it's like, you should close somebody that is the good fit for your company. There aren't enough of them out there. And if they're interested in you and you're interested in them, there is no reason to delay. With what frequency do candidates negotiate with the company? I'd say half to more than half. If a candidate tells us, I will accept at blank, that's the number that we relate to our client. And that's us saying to our client, the candidate said to us, I will accept at this number. We advise you come in at this number or even pad it by $5,000. And when that happens, candidates are not asking to negotiate. If you want to avoid negotiation, whether you're working with an agency or whether you're, you know, you've recruited them directly, understand their ask. And if you love them, beat their ask and they're not going to negotiate. 
I was speaking to a negotiation expert and they were telling me that males are more likely to negotiate initial salary than females are. If that's too touchy, we can avoid it. But if you kind of have what you think is solid experience seeing that one way or the other, is that true? I don't know if I want to field one way or another if it's true. I feel like everyone who's coming in, and they, and you know when you're coming into a new role that you're accepting at a number that you should feel comfortable at, that you're not going to go knocking on the door asking for more money in six months. This should be a number that you feel comfortable at. It should be a number that you're, you're going to accept and be delighted to stay and do your job and work hard. We definitely track data internally in terms of the amount of males or females that have accepted roles at whatever companies. That would be an interesting stat to, for me to pull to see like who pushed back on initial salary to ask for more. I, I don't have a, a firm answer for you right now on that. The statistics support with this individual told me otherwise I wouldn't wouldn't bring it up. But yeah, that would be super interesting data. And then hopefully equal wage for equal work across those companies, which is, which is a whole other topic. If a female feels like they're being underpaid in New York City and they're open to relocation, they should consider roles in San Francisco and they'll immediately balloon 15 to 20%. Whether, whether you're female or male, it's like that's, that's just what we've seen. The demand for this skill set is just so high there that companies are... Uh, we may have a conversation with a candidate and feel like they're valued at a certain number and, you know, advise our client, you know, we want to come in around this number and then we lose out because another company comes in 20K higher. That's not on us. It's not on the candidate. It's just, that's the market dictating that we maybe identified that this person was comfortable at this level. Somebody else thought that person was worth more to them. As I suspected, you are a fountain of wisdom on, on all things sales operations, recruiting, hiring, geographic issues, and so on. If people you know, do want to learn more about sales operations opportunities, how should they learn more about 20 Pine and how should they get in touch with you? Yeah, uh, raise your hand and I will gladly take a call. My name's Aaron Leader. You can probably find my link wherever this is going to be posted on LinkedIn. Or you can drop me an email, Aaron, A-A-R-O-N, at 20pine, spelled out, T-W-E-N-T-Y, pine.com. I'd be happy to chat with you, whether you're looking to hire or if you're looking to get your first or your second or your third sales operations role. Once again, I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Laura Hall is our executive producer. Our artwork is by Greg Klingshern. This episode was edited by Peter Lopinto. Subscribe to us on your favorite app to learn more immediately actionable best practices from our awesome guests. Thanks for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.